read God's word and uh, I seek to proclaim it. It says in our reading today that um, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make that clear to you. So we can seek his grace and help that we may know with greater clarity what he wants to teach us. So let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for this uh, promise in your word that you're about the business not only of having spoken your word, but of helping us to understand it. And we, Lord, ask that you would shape our thinking so that it would be more conformed to your word and so that our lives would be a reflection of your glory to the praise of your Son. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Well, Six Nations rugby season is on the way. Three or four weeks to go. And each national team is starting to look worried by the injury list of their players and wondering who they can buy in from rugby league teams. And as February approaches, people's true national identities get revealed. We call it the United Kingdom when we face the world, but it takes the six nations to bring out what a complex unity it is. People paint their faces and wear certain colors and chant their own songs. And, uh, and there's a pleasant mockery of all who don't have the good fortune to belong to their group. And so you see, for example, a noble and beautiful people wearing red jerseys carrying daffodils with dragons painted on their faces, singing with beautiful voices, unpronounceable songs. And you know you have the good fortune to be amongst the Welsh. And if you see someone wearing lots of tartan, it's either an American tourist or it's a Scottish supporter. And how we admire the Scottish supporters. So loyal after such disappointments. There are times, aren't there, when our true citizenship comes out, when our true home is actually revealed. And so my question today is this, where do we look for our fundamental identity? Where is our mind focused? Now before you rush to answer that question, please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3 on page 1180. No, 1000, that's right. 1,180, 1180. Philippians chapter 3. And I want to take the time to read the whole chapter. The last time we looked at this was at the beginning of December. Had a lot of turkey since then, a lot of snow. So I want to put this in its context. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence." If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straying towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I've often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord. Dear friends, this is the word of the Lord. Now where do we look for our fundamental identity? Where is our mind focused? Well, for the genuine Christian from our text this morning, it is, it is there in chapter 3, verse 20. Have a look at it again with me. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly body so that they will be like his glorious body. Do you see that there are three things there? Firstly, heavenly citizenship. Heavenly citizenship. Secondly, a heavenly savior. Thirdly, a heavenly salvation. The genuine Christian, his identity and his mind is focused on these three things. His heavenly citizenship, his heavenly Savior, and His heavenly salvation. 
Three things that will keep us on track as gospel partners. Three things that will keep us on track as a gospel church. Now that, that is Paul's great concern for this church in Philippi that he loves. Do you see that in 4 verse 1? Very tender language, isn't it? Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love, you whom I long for, my joy, my crown. As he thinks about what his life has been about, his ministry, what are, what are the high points, what are the things that gives him joy? They are what brings him joy. This little church, he loves this church. And he says to them, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends, by having this, uh, this heavenly mindset. Let's think about them. A heavenly citizenship. Verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. Now these Philippian Christians, they they knew what Paul was getting at from their own experience. At that time of writing, the superpower was the Roman Empire, and Philippi was a a very special place. It wasn't uh, in Italy, it was in a different country altogether. It was a long way from uh, Rome, and yet it was granted all the privileges of the Roman homeland. Its citizens were given the same rights and privileges as if they lived within the ancient walls of the city of Rome itself. And Paul was writing to people in a city that was proud of its Roman citizenship. Uh, that They dressed and had customs and laws uh, that they followed in, in that city were just as if they were in Rome themselves, even though they were living in an entirely different country. Their conduct reflected their true citizenship. They lived in one country as if they belonged to another. And that's what Paul is urging the Christians, the way he's urging them to think about who they are. Your citizenship is in heaven. Now, it doesn't take long to wake up and realize that we're not in heaven. But we are to live in this world as people who belong to the world to come. That's how we are to live. And Paul's writing to urge them to, that their conduct would reflect this new citizenship in Christ. It's been his great passion as he's written this letter to them. It was there back in chapter 1, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, he wrote. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. And and as he writes this thank you letter, his passion is to say to them, look, keep living out what you've become in Christ. Let your conduct reflect what you believe. Let your conduct reflect where you belong. Let your conduct be a reflection of your citizenship. You see, if we put our trust in, in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, then we do have a new identity. Something far bigger than being Welsh, wonderful though that is. Something far bigger than being Scottish, wonderful though that is. Something bigger than being American or Japanese. If we're a Christian, you're a citizen of heaven. And we are to live in that way, knowing where we belong, knowing where our home is. Secondly, we have a heavenly Savior. That changes the way we think as it goes on. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, to understand the gospel fully, we need to understand that while Jesus achieved and purchased our salvation in his cross work, in his first coming as he died upon the cross, although it was all achieved there at the cross, the salvation that he bought for us there will only be fully realized and experienced in the future. 
In fact, although there are many blessings to the gospel now, the truth is the great majority of the blessings, and we will realize this as as we come into the future, are yet to come. The great blessings of the gospel will be ultimately realized and experienced in a future day. We await a future Savior. Our hopes are not pinned on this world. Our hopes are not pinned on politicians. Our hopes are not pinned on the scientists. Our hopes are not pinned on the educators. Our hope is pinned on this man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are awaiting a Savior. He will come and save us, his people. We enter into a real living relationship with this Lord Jesus, but there is a day coming when we'll meet him face to face. My friends, I think there was a time when um, Christians were obsessed with the second coming of the Lord Jesus. And there were charts, there were books, there were courses. It's still going strong in, in America, in fact. You can get a lot of these courses. And there's almost been a reaction against that. And so now we hardly reflect on the return of Christ. And that's wrong. This is an essential part of being a Christian, an essential part of living the Christian life. And and, and we will go all wrong and uh, all confused if we forget that our real hope is yet to come. We're awaiting a heavenly Savior. The ascended Lord who stands at God's right hand, will return again and bring and fill out and change the whole world and change us and save us. Now, a totally inadequate illustration. Um, when I started dating Shona, she was in Glasgow, I was in London, and uh, how I loved those letters from her. You know, I got the letters. I was in a relationship with her. I read the letters. I actually talked to her on the phone as well. We talked. We had letters. But the joy of meeting, of being there. See, here we are. There, there is a sense that's so inadequate. We, we, we know the Lord Jesus' presence by his Spirit. And yet we look forward to the day where we'll see him face to face. We're awaiting a heavenly Savior. And we're awaiting a heavenly salvation. Verse 21 who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. This heavenly Savior will return with absolute power. Do you see that? By the power that enables him to bring everything under his control. He will return with absolute power and absolute authority, everything under his control. This is surely something that we'd be yearning for if we lived as a Christian in Haiti today. We live in a world that seems out of control, don't we? We live in a world that is sin-cursed, broken, groaning, in eager expectation and anticipation of the day when the heavenly Savior comes and will bring everything under control. A world where there will be no more earthquakes, no more famine, no more crying. And he will not only transform this world, 
the new heavens and the new earth, He will transform our bodies. We will have a resurrection body like His. Now, Paul knew what that looked like. On the Damascus Road, Paul got a vision of the resurrected, glorious Christ. That's what he saw. The blinding light. As you read the accounts, the three accounts in the Acts of the Apostles of Paul's testimony, and you read through his letters, you see that what he had in that vision just turned his whole life around. And one of the things he observed was the, the Christ that he had hated and despised and rejected is not the Christ. There was Jesus, the Christ, at God's right hand, standing at God's right hand with a glorious resurrection body. A body that was the first fruits of all that would be raised with Christ. He saw that body. And you know, when Paul saw that body, he knew that that's where his hope was. Our bodies are so frail, aren't they? Think about our brother Derek falling over, hitting his head. And uh, our bodies are so frail. Our bodies are decaying. Our bodies are dying. I think I read somewhere from about 18, it's all downhill. Cell death is happening. And these bodies, they let us down, don't they? We're still encumbered by a sinful nature where I, I, I find the things I want to do, I can't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I find myself doing. And this, my friends, is great hope for those who are just feeling depressed at the state of your spiritual life. Here is, here is great hope for those who are feeling the aches and pains, for those who are wearied and sorrowful because of our bodies failing and decaying. We are awaiting a Savior who will come and bring a salvation that will transform our lowly bodies into a body just like His glorious body. We're so glad for the doctors. We're so glad for the surgeons and the nurses and all the rest of us. Put it back together. But my goodness, it's just a patch-up job, isn't it? We need a brand new body that will be fitted for eternity, that will be fitted for a perfect relationship with God, to be with Christ, to have the capacity to enjoy heaven. I, I think it will engulf us and overwhelm us. Paul's blinded by the vision of the glory of Christ. We need, we need better bodies to withstand the full glory and joy and reality of what is to come. My friends, if you're feeling miserable and low, we are awaiting a Savior. This isn't all there is. This isn't what actually it's really all about. We are, we're trusting one who's coming back. He's going to put it all back together. He's going to put us back together. That's what keeps genuine Christians on track as gospel partners. When we remember that we're heavenly citizens. When we remember that we have a heavenly Savior. When we remember that there's a heavenly salvation that is coming. And my friends, there's great danger when we, when we forget this truth of the gospel, this future-orientated hope. See, Paul lays out before the Philippians that there's a real possibility that we can profess Christ and yet... Our hope is not orientated towards heaven, but our minds are fixed on earth. There's a real danger that we can not live as citizens of heaven, even though we are professing to be Christians. And Paul is urging this church that he loves and he longs for not to be like that. He says, don't, don't be like that. Be like me, someone who is pressing on for the prize. Do you see that in 
Let's think back at verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all of this or have already been made perfect. When our citizenship is in heaven, we will realize that we're not yet home. And like the Apostle Paul, we will realize that we've not yet arrived. Now, were there teachers claiming to already be risen with Christ? Is that what we should infer from this text? It's possible. At different times in church history, people have claimed to have arrived at some uh, final spiritual state of maturity. There's been uh, those who've claimed that they've achieved some high moral status of sinless perfection at times in the past, that they've reached a stage where they no longer sin and they claim those sort of foolish things. There are others who... Uh, in our more modern day and age, who um, believe that we've kind of arrived in a in a state of uh, material and physical blessing. Now we 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 we've arrived. All we have to do is claim the promises that we can be uh, fully healthy. You know, if you're diseased and you're ill, that's your problem. You lack faith. You can reach this higher state where you can uh, you know be mature and. Uh, be free from such things and uh, you can know all the material blessings now and in a sense all the great things that they talk about are about you know how the car they drive and the clothes that they wear and how big their house is and and gullible Christians think oh praise God my pastor drives a Bentley and he lives in a big house he must such be a godly man oh praise God to have such a pastor give him more money where is your mind focused at that point? On earthly things. Not on the heavenly reality. It, it, I've met Christians who feel as if they've arrived spiritually, that they found the high watermark of spiritual truth. There's nothing more to learn. They, they don't even go to church and open their Bibles anymore. They've heard it. They've read the book. They've wrote, written the book. They've arrived. Where's that how mature people think? There was a time when Paul had thought that he had arrived with his religious achievements. Maybe the Judaizers were coming along and teaching, you know, adopting the Jewish rites of circumcision, the Jewish food laws, that that would make people mature, that they would arrive. We actually don't fully know what's going on behind these verses. It could be any of these things. But Paul had at the time felt that he'd arrived, but he no longer thought like that. When, when he met the risen Christ, he realized that all his Jewish uh, religious behavior that he'd been so proud of was useless because it, he had rejected the, the, the Christ who had, was promised. He suddenly realized all his own achievements were a loss and he realized that all that he needed was Jesus. That's what was needed. Only by faith in Jesus and the finished work on the cross could he become right before God. No longer could he put his confidence in himself. Now it had to be Christ alone. And if there was in any way people who were teaching that, they, that, that, they, that, that somehow you could arrive in the Christian life and that they, they'd arrived and they could show you the way, Paul says, well, I know that I haven't arrived, verse 12. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect. Do you know how you know who the mature Christians are? The mature Christians are the ones who know they haven't arrived. Being a citizen of heaven will mean that we'll want to press on for the prize. Look at verse 12. I press on toward the goal to win the prize 
for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Look at how Paul describes his conversion in verse 12. It's not him weighing up whether he should choose Christ or not. Jesus just didn't sort of knock feebly on the door of his heart and ask him, you know, please let me in. He gets a blinding vision on, on the road to Damascus and there's nothing else he can do but call Jesus Lord. Christ Jesus took possession of Paul's life. He took hold of him. He had made Paul his own. And because of that, Paul wants to press on to, to, to take hold of fully of everything that God had grabbed hold of him for. Look at verse 14. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Do you see the call of the gospel is a call to future orientation, a call heavenward in Christ Jesus? Jesus has grasped hold of us to make us holy and righteous. That's why we press on to try and be holy. That's our motivation for it. He's already grabbed hold of us to achieve that. Jesus has grabbed hold of us so that we can know him and rely upon him. And so let's press on towards that goal. You see, if his blood has brought our passport to heaven, then we need to keep pressing on to that destination. I want to ask you, how would you describe your life as a Christian? Is it active or passive? Is your life as a Christian aimless or is it purposeful? For Paul, it was profoundly purposeful. Look at verse 13. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Now the idea here is of this of an athlete. Uh, he isn't sitting in the stands, this athlete. Just thinking about all the times he's failed, remembering his past defeats or personal difficulties or injuries. The athlete is, 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 is on the track, focused on the finish line. There are lots of things that can hold us back as Christians, all the failure or the shame of the past, maybe disappointments, or maybe we're on the sidelines just contemplating all the old achievements or victories, the glory days. That can just as much hold us back as our failures. Well, Paul's not looking back at all. He is forgetting what is behind. He's on the track. He's got his eyes on the gold medal. He's straining forward like an athlete in full pursuit of the winning tape. You know, just imagine that picture. Have you, have you seen Hussein Bolt there? Straining. Well, actually, he makes it look effortless, doesn't he? That's, that's unbelievable. But he is focused. Those bulging muscles fully extended as he strides down the track. Well, if we're citizens of heaven, that's the picture of what our lives will look like. We're pressing on for the prize. Is that a picture of you and me? Is that where we're at today? Maybe you're here in church and you know that you're, you're stagnating as a Christian. Maybe you've let the busyness of life or the business of life distract you. Maybe it's a persistent sin. Maybe, maybe you've made some bad choices and life just seems too complicated. And I say to you, today is a fresh opportunity to get back in the race. We can forget what is past and look to the future. See, it's not a competition we're in about who's going to get first place. There's a prize for all who will complete. 
If we're a citizen of heaven, then we'll be pressing on for this future prize. Not distracted, not effortless, but focused and straining forward. Christ Jesus has taken hold of our lives for a reason. There's a Christian life to be lived with purpose. We shouldn't put up with mediocrity. We shouldn't be disheartened and give up. There is a glorious prize to be gained, to know Christ fully, to be with him, to possess the same transformed, glorious body fitted for this eternal enjoyment of heaven. That is what we're focused on. That will keep us on track. Now, the second implication for citizens of heaven is in verse 17 to 19, that we imitate those who are walking that Christian life and not just talking about it. Look at verse 17. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live, or more literally, walk, who walk according to the pattern we gave you. For as I've often told you, before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. We learn by imitation. If you want to become a great artist, you start trying to do some of the pictures the great artists did. If you want to become a great musician, you try and start imitating them and their style. To complete the Christian life and arrive in heaven, we need to imitate those who are, who are walking there and not just talking about it. Be careful who you imitate in your Christian life. Not everyone who says that they were a Christian really lives as a Christian. The Apostle Paul knew that there were other examples that could be followed apart from his, which would lead to disaster. Our sober reading from Hosea reminds us that there was a day amongst God's people where the priests were leading the people astray with their false teaching, failing to teach God's word. There they were, proclaiming to be God's people, leading just the same way into spiritual adultery and actual adultery and immorality and idolatry. There are those who can be supposedly the leaders of God's people that can lead you in a totally different way. Now verse 19 could, could just be a description of, of this world-focused culture, couldn't it? Sounds kind of contemporary. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. In the, the God who is their stomach could be just a description of, of life taken up with pleasing and satisfying appetites. Look at all the infomercials and adverts on the telly. Lots of ads about how you can feed your belly, how you can get medicines to help you improve your belly, to get medicines to heal your expanded bellies, to get machines and diets to fatten your bellies. And most of these are framed in a way that suggests that at the same time you can feed your sexual appetite. Or glory in their shame. That sounds like a lot of TV today, to be honest. Lots of films. But actually, I think it's just too easy to point at a secular, unbelieving world in these descriptions. Why does Paul have to warn them, even with tears? Why is he so concerned that they will follow the wrong examples? And I think it's because he's describing people who are claiming to be Christians. He's describing people who talk like they're Christians. They talk about Jesus and prayer and God and stuff. That's how they talk, but they walk entirely differently. Verse 18. For as I've often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live or many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Does this refer back to these guys who are trying to push these Gentile Christians back into being Jewish if they really want to go on? 
Is that what he's saying? People are obsessed with food laws? Is that why they're making God their belly? Those who are obsessed with circumcision, are they glorying in their shame? It could mean that. At the beginning of December, I suggested that why on earth was it that the Judaizers' message had any attraction? And I suggest it was because of this. If they, if they went back to looking more Jewish, they would perhaps avoid the persecution and the hardship that they face for being Christians. And I think that what is being put there, that, that warning of those who live with their minds focused on this world, uh, would be more contemporary for us as we see it, that there is always a temptation to duck opposition, to, to live a Christian life, but to avoid the costs of following Christ. Keep our heads down in our society. Keep our heads down. Um, just, just fit in with the prevailing understandings of today. I was reading that the Church of England, uh, there's going to be a proposal for their synod to provide um, pension benefits and uh, financial benefits to partners of gay, gay clergy in the Church of England. Now, I read that, and I'm astonished at almost every single level. 50 or 60 years ago, this would be unthinkable that they would be practicing homosexuals who are clergy, let alone provide for partners of it. And yet, here are people who are saying we're Christian believers, and yet they're glorying in their shame. And it's just a symbol and a symptom of the fact that really uh, people around us and there'll be Christians around us too who will say uh, uh, to us at Charlotte Chapel if we're serious about the Bible, oh, would you just grow up? Would you just become a little bit more mature? We, we realize now that uh, the Spirit has taught us other things. See, the stuff the Bible's talking about, that doesn't really apply today. We've moved on We're from such primitive understandings. Why can't you just fit in? You know, be more tolerant. You know, then, then we'll really attract people, you see. The world will oppose us if we have this stand that, that sex is just for marriage and that all sex outside of marriage is sinful. To, to, to hold that is just foolish. Grow up. Be mature. I want to suggest to you that, that such a root is to glory in shame it is to have your mind set on this world and worldly thinking and we're called to be heavenly citizens awaiting a heavenly savior and a heavenly salvation is that how we're living are we living for heaven or are we living for now are we living seeking earthly rewards and approval or are we focused on heavenly rewards and God's approval? You see, if we really do believe that there is a heavenly Savior coming and a heavenly salvation which will give us brand new, glorious, transformed bodies like His, then we will, like Paul, be willing to allow these bodies to experience suffering and hardship and persecution and pain discomfort because we're willing to embrace the suffering that comes from identifying with Christ who came and went to the cross and we'll do so with a sure and certain confidence that as we do that we will get 
a glorious resurrection body like his resurrection body. My friends, this is the Christian hope. And if it sounds a bit alien to us, then we should be fearful, shouldn't we? That the encroaching world is closer than we would like to think. Let's pray and seek his grace, shall we?